Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come to be our good shepherd. For without you, we are harassed and helpless. We ask, Lord, that as we look at this word today, you would give us confidence and power to go forth proclaiming your name to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, today we are at the end of a season, the end of the epiphany season, right? And the epiphany season is all about the light of Christ going out into the world. And so symbolically after today, the, the Christ candle goes away as we go into the season of Lent and we turn our focus inward as we look at ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to help us be better um, witnesses of Christ in our own lives and with those around us. From Christmas until now, we've been celebrating our Lord, the light that shines in the darkness. You'll remember on Christmas Eve, if you were here or perhaps in your own church, we ended Christmas Eve with that dramatic reading from John 1 in the dark. The light has shine, shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And of course, that light is Jesus. We've traveled this year with St. Matthew in our lectionary readings through the presentation of Jesus in the temple, his baptism in the Jordan River, and most recently his sermon on the Mount, showing the different types of light that he is shining, different ways rather, that he is shining into the darkness. And in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 14, Jesus declared to those following him, you are the light of the world. And also in verse 16, so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. These words have served as the motto of the church for the past 2000 years, along with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. But there are times when the church has lived into this calling better than others, if we're honest. Sometimes the church has survived despite herself, right? And thanks, of course, the church always survives due to the grace of Jesus continually poured into her. As Jesus predicted in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell have not prevailed against her. Last week, we again examined and witnessed one of the church's biggest assets. Do you remember what it was? Holy Communion. And I want to tell you that in that sermon, I made an error, which someone pointed out to me. And I think it's an error that is uh, worth saying. And I said that the word communion never occurs in the Greek of the New Testament. Um, I was flat out wrong. <laughs> and I don't know why I didn't remember this. 
from my seminary days, but someone pointed out to me that indeed the word communion does occur some 20 times in the New Testament. So I was really wrong. In the Greek, it's koinonia. And in my mind, I was thinking about that as community, but it's also communion. And so a correction from your rector or to your rector <laughs> shared with you. In the sacrament of Holy Communion, however, in that holy and act and eternal instance, our Lord Jesus fashioned a holy covenant community to connect the church through the world and indeed through all time. World Mission Sunday is an excellent way to conclude Epiphany, for Jesus' incarnation was, if nothing else, a mission trip. Did you ever think about that? Jesus descending to this earth was a mission trip. In fact, the mission trip. With the goal of salvation for all people. To knit together into one communion and community all of humanity itself in himself. As we look at the scriptures today, we see mission begins with God's love for mankind. Mission begins with God's love for mankind. Secondly, we see Jesus's obedience gathers Israel and the nations to the Father. Jesus's obedience gathers Israel and the nations to the Father. And thirdly, we see that the Holy Spirit conveys that power to gather and proclaim to the church. Mission begins with God's love for mankind. Perhaps you hadn't thought about it before. Maybe you even missed it. But our first reading is all about this mission and missionary, though it doesn't use that language. Rather, in Isaiah 49, if you look at your scripture inserts or in your Bibles, what language do we see used? Not missionary, but what? Creation. Hmm? Creation. creation is used as that is the mission field. Yes, all nations and creation. What else do we see? Rather than missionary, we see servant. servant. Yes, servant. And so, who is that ser servant? Now, I imagine you have a good idea who that servant is. But this scripture is highlighting Jesus as a missionary servant that the prophet Isaiah, long before Jesus came to this earth, is talking about. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. He says this. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. So what's going on in this reading? It's a little tricky. It's a little tricky. I had to read it several times and then kind of do a little bit of studying into it. Um, it's fortunate in the English we have quotation marks. That's not there in the original text. But if you look at who's speaking here to whom, you'll understand that this is not Isaiah speaking. Isaiah's the voice piece. He's the mouth. 
that's being that's speaking the whole thing to us as a prophet. But this is actually a dialogue. Did you catch that? I asked uh, David, our lector today, if he would help me reading this in parts so as to um, emphasize that. So Dave, why don't you come up here and kind of like we're talking to one another, right? My mic will pick you up a little bit too. All right. Look at the Old Testament reading again. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention to your people from afar. You peoples, rather, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord said, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred to the nations, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, and arise, and princes, they shall prostrate themselves, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. Thank you, dude. So do you see that that's actually a dialogue? It's a dialogue that's being uncovered and revealed through the prophet for God's people to see. And it's a dialogue between God, the Lord, and his servant. God, the Lord, and his servant. So what's going on here? Well, God's people here are exiles at the time of Isaiah's writing. They're exiles in Persia, taken captive. But the scope of this revelation from the prophet, this prophecy, is much more than what's immediate, immediately going on in Israel's history. You see, way back in the book of Exodus, in chapter 19, verse 6, God tells Israel that they are to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. They were to be a holy nation to show forth God's glory. But in the time of Isaiah, they had utterly failed. In fact, they had failed so bad that now they were in exile. Those of them that were left, many of them were killed. And this is not a surprise to God at all. His plan is bigger yet and accounts for their failure, which should hearten you and me too. He will still bring salvation till the ends of the earth. How do we know this? Well, we look at verse 1 and verse 7. 
the flanking verses of the passage today. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention to your people, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. And then look at verse 7, immediately thereafter, on the inside of the insert. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, who to, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves before the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Now, if you put yourself in the place of those exiled Jews at this time, this is really encouraging, right? Because you're the slaves at this point. You're the servants, right? And this promise that the Lord is going to come back and all will bow down before him is encouraging. But notice this extends beyond that immediate context. It covers all time in all people. There's a universality to this announcement. And God is calling them all to listen. This isn't Isaiah speaking for himself, but for God. As we just saw, it's a conversation of God between God and his servant. So look at it again in that regard. And you see that the Lord, which is short for Yahweh, is indeed speaking to his servant. Who is the servant? Again, we come back to that question. Well, who is it that was called from the womb? Who was named before he was born? Who is it whose mouth is as sharp as a sword? Who is it that, in God's, that was hidden in God's hand and is like a polished arrow hidden in God's quiver? as this passage points out. The images are powerful, if we let them speak to us, that this servant, like a sharp sword, has been hidden, but is going to be revealed. Hidden as one might hide a short sword or a dagger in his cloak or in his hand is the image that's going on in Isaiah here. Or like an arrow hidden somewhere on your body, ready to be shot. The Lord has made this servant's words sharp and powerful. The Lord has made this servant himself like a polished arrow, ready to pierce. Again, whom? Well, that's a larger conversation. But certainly the Lord's enemy, the adversary, and man's enemy, the adversary. And also perhaps the hearts of men and women too. What's the task of the servant to accomplish in this reading? Look at verse 5a and 6. That is the first half of verse 5 and verse 6. The first task is what? To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. Do you see that? And the second task in verse 6, to raise up the tribes of Jacob preserved the preserved of Israel and to be a light to the nations. But if you know your Bible stories from the Old Testament and from our sermon series last summer, something in this passage should jump out to you. Something really obvious has to do with the characters 
listed in those two verses. Who is Israel? Who is Jacob in the Old Testament? They're the same person. Yeah, they're the same person. Israel and Jacob are the same person. Now, I want to ask you, is anybody here a swimmer? Anybody like to swim? Anybody other than me? Eh, a couple of you. Okay, I love swimming. It's the, it's the only cool form of exercise where you don't get sweaty and gross. <laughs> I like that. I wish I did it more, but alas. If you were swimming out in Lake Erie, and you had a cramp, you're going along, and you have a cramp in your side, and you can't swim anymore, and you start to sink down. Let me ask you, could you save yourself? You would hope to grab passes. You'd hope to maybe paddle, maybe with one hand, you know, keep your head above water, right? But can you save yourself? No. You need a lifeguard. You need a rescuer. So look at this passage again, and what is it saying about this servant? Can Israel save Israel? Can Jacob save the tribes of Jacob? No. It seems to make no sense if we're paying attention to what's being said here. But what then is being said? Look again at verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then look at verse 5 again. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. The patriarch Jacob is long dead at this point. And we've already said Israel is an utter failure. Both aren't doing any saving here. So who is? Well, we get the answer. How is it that God's servant Israel is going to save Israel? How is it that Jacob is going to be gathered by Jacob? Well, verse 7 tells us again. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. The servant here, who is deeply despised, who is abhorred by the nation, who came unto his own, and his own did not accept him, is Jesus. But God has chosen him as the Christ, as the anointed, and given him the power to save his failed people. His failed people. You see, the answer to the problem here is that the servant of God who was chosen is Jesus, who is also the perfect Israel. The perfect Israel. Which takes us to the second point. Don't worry, they're not as, all as long as the first. That Jesus' obedience gathers Israel and the nations to the Father. Where Israel's a failure, Jesus is perfect. And he's therefore perfectly able to be that lifeguard or that rescuer to his people, to the tribes of Jacob and indeed all Israel. 
and to you and me and the Gentiles. The prophecy has come true, friends. Look at verse 9. Or look at the gospel now, rather. Chapter 9, verse 36. What do we read about Jesus doing in today's gospel? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now let me ask you, what do shepherds do? Amongst other things, they gather sheep. They rescue sheep. Jesus gathers to himself all of Israel and all of Jacob with his coming. On his missionary trip, he is doing the gathering. He restores the 12 tribes of Israel with the 12 apostles. His task is ongoing, however. Jesus was and is the servant that's been prophesied. And notice he was abhorred and despised by his own, nailed to a cross by both Jew and Gentile. But some listened to him. And the gospel today tells us that all kings will bow down before him. Now to the third point. The Holy Spirit conveys the power to the church to bring salvation to the world. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 6, what do the apostles ask Jesus before he ascends? Look with me inside your scripture insert at the New Testament reading. Chapter 1, verse 6. What do they ask him? That's right. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They ask. Little do they know what they're asking about and what God has in store for them. Look at Jesus's answer in verse eight. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Just 10 days later, these apostles would be participating in the restoration of Israel as thousands of Jews came to the temple from all across the Roman Empire. This is that wonderful Pentecost reading that readers don't always think is so wonderful because they have to pronounce the, the uh, Persians. And that's an easy one. I'm trying to think of the hard ones. The Arabians, uh, those are the easy ones. But you know, you know that passage in Acts, right? We just, just, uh, where St. Luke goes through and he lists all the peoples that are there at Pentecost. Why are they all there? Because they are the dispersed Israel. They're the dispersed Jews. And so the apostles are there to gather in Jesus's name, Israel, back unto himself, to gather the tribes of Judah, back unto himself, and then shortly after to proclaim that to the Gentiles. That's the rest of the story. That's history, church history, in fact. And Jesus has given this task of redeeming Israel and extending salvation to the ends of the earth to his church through the apostles. 
His words are no longer hidden, but rather they're powerful and sharp, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. Not many individuals or nations, if you look around and in your own experience, are ambivalent, ambivalent rather, to Jesus, are they? Are people ambivalent to Jesus? Just like, oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's an interesting historical fact. Kind of like Caesar, you know? No. People are opinionated about Jesus one way or the other. He's a polarizing figure because his words are sharp, because he is like an arrow. And we too, like the apostles, are to be witnesses and laborers for this God's servant in his kingdom. You and I, fellow Christians, have a profound calling. It's not merely a calling that you and I present, be present rather, in the church each Sunday and receive the sacrament. Oh yes, that's important. It's commanded in the first commandment, by the way, right? We'll hear a lot about that as we go into Lent. But God is calling us to more. And God does not merely call you and I to be communicants or church members. He's calling us to more. And as strange as it is, God is not merely calling you and I to love one another. Though that's a high calling. He's calling us to more. No, God is calling us to be active witnesses and laborers. Saved and fed out of God's love, but for a purpose. To be a witness and a laborer is to be part of the harvest, to be part of the mission, to be part of the task of the church, wherever you may be. You don't have to go to a foreign land to be a missionary, although praise God for those who do. But what's your mission, dear Christian? And I don't ask that rhetorically. I ask it as a point of reflection. What and where is your mission today, tomorrow? For that should be a question that's on our minds every morning we wake up. Praise you, Lord Jesus, that you've saved me. What do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do today? Part of World Mission Sunday and Pentecost later is to give us this friendly shock that we, in fact, are missionaries. And as Christians, we fall prey to many distractions. I'm reading this book on parish life, and it says one of the faults that a church can fall into is to become so busy with its inner workings that it ceases to proclaim the gospel. There's so many committee meetings, prayer meetings, small group meetings, that it doesn't ever get to going outside of the walls of itself. I don't think that's necessarily the case here, but it's something that we have to guard against. For woe to us if we think that World Mission Sunday is for the professional missionaries. That's like saying that to live a Christian life is for the priest, the professional Christian. It misses the whole point. Don't get me wrong, it's important to support missionaries around the world, and as a congregation, we do. 
and aim to do even better. But to do mission is to go to the person on your street. To be a missionary is to be willing to express your faith to your friend. Maybe on Facebook, maybe in the supermarket, maybe at the gym, maybe at the right place, at your workplace. How many of us see that as a mission field? For it is. How many people on your street go to church? Do you know? How many people on your block? Maybe, maybe just your immediate neighbors even, within four or five houses. How many people go to church? Do you know? Leah and I actually did this exercise. And on our street, which is a very short street, there's 16 houses. Out of those 16 houses, we know of seven households that go to church. Now, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, I'm in a, a strongly Roman Catholic, Irish, Italian neighborhood, and there's a lot of cultural inheritance there. People do still go to mass. But I looked it up. It's interesting. According to Gallup and polls in 2019, a little under 50% of people still go to church or are members of a church. I think it even says that's still actually pretty good when you think about it. But that still means, even if that's the case, that 50% of our neighbors don't go to church. 50%. Which means that they don't feel compelled to have any kind of spiritual home. Some may even consider themselves Christians, but they're neglecting the most basic, basic commandment of Jesus to be in communion with the church body. As Jesus said, friends, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And you and I are part of those few, or at least we should be, if we desire to please Jesus. What should we do? Because, you know, a lot of sermons talk about these things and then don't give you any practical applications. So here's a couple practical things, three of them, in fact. Number one is a step of resolve. It's an act of the will. Resolve to labor for the mission. Make that a priority in your life. Maybe wake up and say it every day. As we read in, about uh, Jesus and Isaiah today, that was his determined task to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And in Lent, we're reminded that that's part of our internal development too. Make a decision, a resolve or action of the will to be a missionary. Number two, Jesus tells us directly, pray. In the gospel passage today, he says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Because it doesn't just ride on you. Pray for others to join you in this mission. Look for friends in your neighborhood who are also on this mission. Pray for the Holy Spirit to be work in your neighbor, at work in your neighbors, that your resolve and your actions might bear fruit. So that's the second step, is to pray. And the third step is to plan. Assess your street. If you don't know your neighbors, get to know your neighbors. 
I know it's hard if you're like, you know, younger and you're in apartments, perhaps, you know, there's people are moving all the time. That makes it difficult. But still try to know your neighbors. If nothing else, to be a good citizen. But more importantly here, to know where are they? Do they know Jesus? Are they part of his kingdom yet? You don't have to ask them probing questions. Just observe them. And then make a plan. Who might be open to knowing Christ or coming to church with you? Make a plan. Who might be open? That's something that only you and the Holy Spirit can determine, by the way. It does no good for you to be like, I'm going to go to, you know, 3703 West 169th and on Monday, and then I'm going to go to, you know, the next, it, it, and the Holy Spirit. That's not how it works. You have to think about it and pray about it, right? But maybe as you're walking to the car, to that backyard over your fence, or maybe as you're walking out to get the newspaper or to get your latest Amazon purchase, just, just stop for a second and look around. It could be this easy. You just stop for a second, you look around, and you say, oh, that person's out. And wave at them. And then say, hey, how are you doing? And maybe that'll open a conversation. I know, this is basic stuff. But I need the basic stuff. So maybe you do too. And the fourth step is to support missionaries and evangelists to support missionaries and evangelists. We come full circle. Why are missionaries and evangelists so important? Because they are those who have studied these things. They are people that understand enculturating the gospel. That is, talking with other people about the gospel, getting out of the way so you're not being offensive. It's one thing if the gospel's offensive, but you shouldn't be offensive, right? It's true that World Missions Sunday is all about missionaries and they need to be supported and helped. But maybe those missionaries, in addition to the professional ones, are people who you haven't thought about before this sermon. For maybe the missionaries are you and me. And the mission field is your neighborhood, your workplace, your gym. Dear friends, it begins with God's love who sent Jesus, the greatest missionary to the world. It continues with God's love as Jesus sends us out into the world. It continues and has continued for some 2,000 years from that first Pentecost. And Jesus promises this, that he hasn't left us alone, but that he's promised through his church and by his Holy Spirit, that if we're obedient, he will provide the words. He will provide the opportunities. He will provide what we need to be faithful to our call. The question for us remains and has been for the church for that 2,000 years, do I have the resolve and the love to be a missionary in my time and place? Do I have the resolve and the love to be a missionary and a witness in my time of place? May God grant that you and I do have that resolve and love. For he has declared, I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.